Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. Well, hello, welcome in. It is indeed Downtown, the podcast. Episode number 165. Rich Kimball here along with Carrie Haskell. Brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Just one guest on the podcast this week, uh, but we had a wonderful time talking with him. Uh, He's been on with us before, this time promoting his new book that is, uh, well, part history and part autobiography. Chris Matthews, uh, the former host of Hardball, longtime political insider, has written a, a very honest and entertaining story of his life in politics and history called This Country. Here's Chris Matthews on Downtown. Thank you very much for having me on. Thank you. It's great to have you with us. Well, I, I love the book. And uh, to me, Thank you. Uh, it, it read like uh, watching the best episodes of Hardball, uh, a relentless pursuit for the truth, a fine dash of humor, uh, a big heart, and an undying concern for the little guy. Aren't you nice? Thank you very much. And And as somebody who's a teacher full time, I have to give a shout out and a big thanks to Mr. Tremblay from LaSalle High School. Yeah, he was my uh, mentor in a many, you know, one day I read the book, he, uh, I had, I was senior year after uh, a failure to get on the paper earlier on, I think my sophomore year, I was in the band and I was trying to cover a football game and my dad was great because he did all the stats for me and up in the stands. And then I went home and knocked out a piece of, of reporting on the football game. And uh, he decided that wasn't the one he wanted to use. He picked another one. It was pretty much more colorful. And uh, But then senior year, for whatever reason, I, I made a second effort to get on the paper. And uh, I would hang around the headquarters, the, uh, the newsroom, I guess you'd call it. And one day he just said to me, um, if you're going to hang around here all day, I might, might as well make you an editor. <laughs> and so uh, he made me an assistant editor. And um, I got to cover a lot of stuff, do a lot of writing. It was great for me. And, of course, a big part of your story, Chris, is your family and your upbringing. How important was that to shaping the, the man that you've become? Well, it's kind of a, it's good, and it's also a conflict. My dad was a uh, classic cloth coat Republican, you know, as Nixon would say, not a rich guy. But he believed in self-reliance and doing your duty and basically providing for your family by himself. Republican, although he likes Social Security, Medicare, and all that stuff too. He liked all. As George Will once said, Americans are conservatives. They want to conserve the New Deal. So there's a lot of things people do like, even if they're conservatives. And uh, but he was really good. At, Mom and he were really good at conversations around the dinner table. My brother Bert called that. My older brother called that the uh, second cup of coffee. Somehow they could drink two cups of coffee every night and sleep like babies. So I don't know how they did that, but. There's always a, a lively conversation that usually revolved around, oh, that was before the war, or that's since the war. Before the war, there was anti-Catholicism. After the war, there was bad construction and housing. <laughs> they didn't think houses were built solidly as they used to be. And I think they were right, actually. Can you talk so I learned about, a lot from them at home, a lot at home. Can you talk about the 1964 Democratic Convention and, and how that helped shape your worldview and, and give you a path to the future? Well, I think you're talking about uh, the 64. I was working as a busboy in Ocean City, New Jersey, and I 
sort of snuck into some events. In fact, I tried to sneak into the convention hall one time. Uh, I got to get in there in time to collect. I got to shake hands with Hubert Humphrey, Eugene McCarthy, Adlai Stevenson, Scoot Jackson. They're all, I managed to get a hold of a $25,000 badge to go into one of those parties. Some older woman with lots of money gave it to me on her way out. She said, I, I have no use for this thing. So I got to meet them all. Uh, 72 was one that really battered me because that was the crazy convention where the left had taken over. And I thought they were really immature. They they, they didn't let McGovern speak till like 2.45 in the morning. And he missed the whole national audience so that knuckleheads like Mike Ravel of Alaska would put their names in the nomination for vice president just because they're egomaniacs. I mean, there was no organization to it. it was no, it, and yet the left was in heaven because they were running the show. And you made, a, worry about you made a great point about 72 in the book that it seemed that the McGovern people were happier about beating the old guard in the Democratic Party than in taking on Nixon. Yeah, it was like they had um, they had won because they beat Dick Daly and they beat Tip O'Neill. They beat all the old guys, the old regulars, and they uh, and they. But basically, everybody forgets this. The war was pretty much over in Vietnam for our part by '72. It was like a late hit. I mean, we had Nixon had pulled most of the troops out because we knew that politically it was necessary to do that. And it was really arguing over what had happened in 68. They were still mad about what Daly and his police had done to the students back in 68 in Chicago. So it was sort of a late a late hit, as I put it, over the war issue. Uh, I would have thought that Ed Muskie would have been a much stronger candidate. In fact, I've always thought that. He may have, he may have lost to Nixon, but the party would have looked very good afterwards. They would have felt they put in a heavyweight a thoughtful person who was a liberal, but also a practical person. And um, I'm a big Muskie fan. I worked for him for three years. I thought he was the best. He had a temperament and a temper, which were Vesuvian temper. But I never got it thrown at me, just a few shots at me when I worked for him. But um, I thought he was a very serious legislator and a, and a real patriotic guy. Well, of course, we, we love Ed Muskie here in Maine, and I want to come back to him uh, later on. But I also want to go back to an event that was such a big part of your young life, and that was uh, your trip to Africa and your, uh, what, two years there working in the Peace Corps. Yeah, I think it changed my life. As, as people will tell you who's had that opportunity themselves, wherever they went, Micronesia, Dominican Republic, it, it, the thing is, Unlike being in, say, the military, you're not in a, root, a, a regiment. You're really out there on your own. They gave babies, basically, what the Peace Corps does is give you a salary. We were making 72 bucks a month, which was a lot of money in Africa, no complaints. Gives you a place to stay, usually paid for by the government there, and says, go to your job. Show up like anybody else. If you're teaching grade school or high school, go teach like any other teacher over there. If you're working in economic development or rural development or you're anything, go do that job, and you're working for that government. So you're really, uh, you know, you're really on your own. And there's actually there's two kinds of Peace Corps jobs. There's the regular job like teaching school and you know your job, you know when to show up, what the classes are. And at the end of the semester, you know, you've done something. Then there are the jobs you have to be creative about creating the job. And that was one of my, that was my kind of job. I'm out there with my Suzuki 120 motorbike riding around the African bush belt with the escarpment in the distance, just like a Tarzan, you know, the escarpment of, in the high in the distance and uh hot riding around and meeting small business guys and talking about how they run their business at zulu but as much as i can ma master it and uh you know really getting to know a lot of people individually 
I think the big Peace Corps thing for me was when I was in a room one time and I, I realized there were 17 guys in the room with me, all African guys, all Swazis, business guys from 30 to 50 years old, I guess. And they, I knew them all. I knew the, who I would trust alone to, or who was good on different things. And I, uh, I knew their personalities. And I said, this is it. I made it. This is what I wanted to be like. I want to be able to connect with people as people. Uh, far from home, but some of them treated me like their son. They were so nice. And I talk in a book about on a hot day in Africa, you'd ride up to this little store and the guy, the first thing you'd do is you'd say, you want a cold drink? And you don't even pronounce the D, it's cold drink. And I'd say, sure. And somewhere he would find a warm Coke or a warm Marsh Fanta because there's no refrigerator around, you know? And, uh, but it was a cold drink and uh, sometimes had fridges, but very rarely. And they were very nice to me. I mean, that's the thing about, you know, I never worried about being beat up or even criticized or takes, I never even put up with sarcasm. I'm not sure they believed in sarcasm, but I, I never found anything but kindness from people, you know, and I'm just some long haired 20 some year old skinny guy from God knows where. And they would have nothing to physically fear for me. And they, uh, they were nice. That's a big, big message. Did it change your view of America seeing our country through their eyes? Yeah, I think uh, the Cold War meant a lot more to us than it meant to anybody but us and the Russians and I say, assume Eastern Europe. Uh, in those third world countries, they're, they're worried about getting a meal. Uh, I always wondered how they made it. In fact, they lived on a very you know, scraggly crop of, uh, of corn, of maize. I don't know how they made it last the whole year. They may kill, sell a cow because they all had cattle for 35 or 50 bucks and live off that for a while. But basically, um, they, they, they had phrases like this. This will tell you something. If, if the father wasn't around when I go to a store, it's all oh, he lapis side, he lapis side. Lapis side means the other side, meaning the curvature of the earth or something like it. He's on the other side of that hill. You know, he's not in sight. He's lappy side. I mean, think about how pr how primitive, how simple that life is. You're either here or you're lappy side. You're either visible and present or you're over the next hill and not present. You can't see him. So he's, and then they say it long way, say, oh, he's lappy side, like really far away. They had no idea where Philadelphia was or Bangor, Maine or anything. They, they didn't know where I had a guy who's a friend of mine over there. He thought the Pope, and he was a smart guy. I'm not putting him down at all. He was an intellectual guy. He thought the Pope was in in London. The distinction, what we what, think about, what's the distinction between Rome and London if you're living in Swaziland? Right. Nothing. <laughs> it's just another European name, you know? Um, but he also corrected me when I kidded him one time. I was kidding him and saying, oh, of course, you know, I'm in the CIA. Here's a case where sarcasm doesn't work or irony because he didn't irony may be unique to us and the Brits. I don't know, but you, you say something like that as a joke. It, they don't hear the joke. They hear you saying it and they go, it's like print journalism. Be careful what you say in sarcasm because when it's written down, it doesn't sound sarcastic. Right. It sounds real or ironic. So he just said, never say that, Chris, Chris, never say that because they did have a fear that we were intervening that we were working for our government. We were, we were spying on them as if, they, and everybody has pride, A, in being a, a nation state sovereign. And the other thing they always have a, a, a vanity, 
that we want to know what's going on so much. I mean, I don't think the American people are really trying to tune into Swaziland, you know. Maybe they were because we're always looking for communists in that part of the world, you know. We're talking with Chris Matthews here on Downtown. His new book is called This Country, My Life in Politics and History. While you ran Africa, you read Ted Sorensen's book, and and that gave you a direction. It showed you what you wanted to do. But I think people would be surprised to learn that your your first taste of patronage in Washington was being a member of the Capitol Police Force. Yeah, that, that was the old system uh, where, uh, well, you know, people like Harry, Harry Reid, the, the future Democratic Senate leader, Mike Barnacle, the Globe, but now with the MSNBC, they were all Capitol cops. In fact, Harry Reid rode that reputation as a capital cop because it was a high crime city at the time, being elected attorney general of uh, Nevada. He said, tough Harry Reid was a capital policeman in Washington. Like, oh, my God, he was a street cop and he was facing the bad guys every day. But in fact, he was doing what I was doing, basically patrolling the building at night. And uh, but yeah, that was a way to get started. I, uh, I uh, would work uh, in Senator Frank Moss's office in U- from Utah from about 11 in the morning to three in the afternoon. And then I would go over and put my uniform on my 38 special, my, you know, my revolver and head out to to do my shift. till 11 o'clock at night, I was doing two jobs in the beginning. Then I eventually after several months was made a full-time legislative assistant. That's what I wanted to get. That's the job I wanted. Uh, You ended up working for Wayne Owens and his campaign for Congress. And then for Ralph Nader, uh, what was that experience like for you? Well, it's one of those jobs I really liked. I really liked, uh, I didn't have any money. Uh, we were making 8000 a year, which is a bit more than, than now. Not a lot more, but it was more. I don't, don't want to say it's paltry. It's, it's the same salary I was making as a cop, about 8000 Uh Nader was very strict. There was no expense accounts. Uh, if you want to take a cab, go ahead. It's your money, but it's not his money. It's not his contributor's money. He was a very charming guy. When he, I mean, I was overwhelmed by the guy. He's just, I know he's very orthodox and clean and super reformer, but when you meet him, you like him and uh, as a person. And I was, I got through the interview with him. Um, but he was looking for perfection. I can't say that I didn't sort of hedge a little when he said, <laughs> you don't drink, do you? <laughs> what are you supposed to say? Like, yeah, I'm a, I'm a boozer or I'm, or I'm a nun. Which is, what do you want? I mean, do you drink? It was almost like if you said you drank, it was like you're a drunk. So I said, I, I think I hedged that one. Do you smoke cigarettes? And I said, I, I hedged on that too because he thinks smoking slows you down because he said you couldn't do the work we do if you smoke. What? I don't think, I think that's not a, I don't see those two conflicting. But I don't do either now, so I'm finally telling the truth. <laughs> if you're listening, Ralph, I don't smoke or drink at all. So, But you took what you had learned along the way and you brought it to your own campaign for Congress yeah, yeah. in Philadelphia. Yeah, he, started, he started something called the uh, uh, Capitol Hill News Service, which was to really get a, ch- a chance to cover uh, uh, congressmen and congresswomen, mostly congressmen back then, who aren't getting covered at all by the press because they didn't have a local report. They didn't have a radio station, TV station, or a newspaper that put the money into hiring a, a capital reporter in Washington. So they were really able to write their own story. They could put out press releases, and that's who people thought they were, whoever they said they were. So he said, no, we have to get these guys covered. And so I would assign, I was assigned the Pennsylvania delegation, and a lot of those guys I was, I had never been covered by the press. In fact, one of the guys in Scranton had a local 
reporter for the Scranton uh, Tribune, that was the afternoon paper, the Republican paper, on his payroll. Right, and they I saw said, no wait, conflict wait, wait of interest. Wait a minute. Yeah, I said, wait a minute. This is a conflict. You, you got a guy who's covering you, uh, actually being paid by you. <laughs> so I go. I called the managing editor of the paper, the Tribune, and I said, isn't this a conflict? And I got talk about old school. He goes, oh, no. <laughs> Whenever the congressman does something, we're right on top of it. Because <laughs> he's writing the press release in the newspaper, basically. You know, what's the you know what's the difference? But that's the old days. It's still similar in Boston. You know, you got the Herald, which is the conservative paper. You got the Globe, which is more liberal. Liberal. And uh, I mean, Tip used to say when I worked for him, just to jump ahead, he would say, uh, I would say to myself, the press cannot be better for Tip O'Neill in the Globe. Impossible. It's impossible. <laughs> it's perfect. It's always wonderful. They they love the guy, and it can't be any worse or better in the Herald. <laughs> the strategy was feed the Globe. Stiff the Herald. <laughs> and I, I don't know if that's still true. It probably is in a lot of congressional districts. You know, you got your friends, you got your enemies. Let's talk about Ed Muskie. Uh, you joined him working on the Senate Budget Committee. Um, he had that temper, was famous for that. There were those who said it helped him in the legislative process. It would come back to bite him in, in Manchester in 1972. Yeah. But uh, did he control it uh, from your perspective working with him? I think he saw it as a, uh, uh, a a craft, a state, a, a, a trade craft. It was useful that people were, didn't want to have to face them. Um, I'm not sure that's true. I think it's just a problem he had. Uh, he uh, took everything very seriously. He was always saying, we need more pressure around here. We need more work to do. He one of the few senators that liked to really legislate. He liked to plan each meeting, each markup session when they wrote the bills. He wanted to be, you know, always with enough of the uh, other votes he brought in with them uh, to win. He, he never went, like, we used to say iron pants because he never left the seat to go to the bathroom. We could have been, who is this guy? <laughs> he, he was staying the hearings for hours and never leave, never get up, even to walk around a bit. He just kept working. I always attributed that to being an immigrant son and being happy that my dad was like this, the first one in your generation to wear a suit to work. You know, it, it was such an upgrade socially and professionally that I think he thought he better not uh, underuse it. Not, he, he should use it for all it's worth to get good things done. You know, he wasn't in a profanity or fame, right. fame or celebrity. I mean, when he quit, he quit. He didn't keep writing op-ed pieces like some guys do. Just trying to stay in the picture. He, he uh, in fact, I defend him on something once. And he wrote me back and said, I'm retired now. He basically said, but thanks for supporting me, but I retired. I'm retired. Um, uh, so that's an interesting guy. He, most politicians are human beings. They like celebrity that comes with the job. I'm not sure. I remember saying to him at the end, this gives you a good picture of the guy. I'm about to leave. I had gotten a job at the White House in 1977. And I went in to say goodbye to him. And um, because I was a formal sort of way of leaving the office. Says, Thank you, Senator, for letting me work for you, blah, blah, blah. And I so I, I confected this little line to him. I said, Senator, I always thought that if we had a, a parliamentary system in this country, you'd be prime minister now. Because he was respected by his colleagues. And he didn't do so well in the presidential campaign. So he looked at me and he goes, but we don't, do we? <laughs> well, you'll appreciate I was, this. I, uh... I, I thought that was very main. I felt that was a main sort of Dan East kind of thing. You know, it's like very dry. 
I, I met him when I was a young guy working on uh, Bill Hathaway's campaign for the Senate in 1972. And I, and I knew him for many years, not well, but enough that he would say hello. And, and then many years later, I think after he had retired, I was working in television. And he came in to do a, a brief interview and they set him up uh, in the newsroom uh, near my desk and said, can you help? Secretary Muskie with his IFB and all that. And, and said, sure, I'll do that. And and he was being interviewed by someone upstairs on the set. And it was an anchor who clearly didn't understand the depth of the questions that were being asked. And I could see that he was getting frustrated with it. And finally, at the end, he gave a cursory thank you, ripped out his IFB and looked at me and said, Richard, where do they find these people? <laughs> Well, he did have that tendency to be uh, judgmental. Um, there was one line, I, I wasn't in the room, but one of the top staff guys who wrote speeches for him uh, gave him a speech and he reads it. And I'd worked on this for days. He reads it, he gives it back to him and says, it isn't much, is it? <laughs> wow. <laughs> it wasn't like Henry Kissinger would throw them on the floor, you know, and, three or four times and then finally on the fifth time would say okay i'll read this one i'll read this draft <laughs> uh no he wasn't arrogant like that at all but he was tough he was tough we're talking with chris matthews here on downtown the podcast and when we come back chris talks about his work as a speechwriter for president jimmy carter after this word from Cross Insurance. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. And we're back. It's Downtown, the podcast. with Chris Matthews about his new book, This Country, My Life in Politics and History. Up next, Chris talks about his time working as a speechwriter for President Jimmy Carter. You say in the book, Chris, that uh, your time as a speechwriter for Jimmy Carter was uh, maybe the favorite job you ever had. Well, just imagine uh, sitting in a big room, in your own room, in uh, the executive office building. It's now called the Eisenhower Building, right next to the White House. And um, your one job is to sit there and knock out speeches for the president of the United States. That's your job. And so you, you, you call around and try to get ideas. People think speech writing is like, sort of like cleaning up the, the, the draft that the president wrote or the senator wrote. <laughs> They're not going to sit down and write a draft. They don't need you if they can do that. Your job is to write the darn speech and to write it, the jokes, the, the uh, rec recognitions of different people in the room. Uh, the little strokes you have to do to different organizations. You got to do all that puffery up front. And you also have to come up with a theme. Sometimes you might get one, but usually you have to come up with yourself. You have to figure out what the point of the speech is and everything. You've got to write the speech. It's not like proofreading or something. You've got to write a creative piece of work that fits with that person, that president, wants to say to that group at that time for his political benefit and for some policy purpose. And um, that's the challenge. 
I mean, people like Peggy Noonan, the best there is for Ronald Reagan. Uh, Ted Sorensen, they knew the soul of the person they worked for. And they completely got, they channeled them. You know, John Favreau with uh, Obama. You know, we worked at that with Jimmy Carter, but Jimmy Carter was hard to write for because he was inductive in his thinking. He wasn't deductive. He didn't have a thematic ideology you could sort of follow. He wasn't anti-government necessarily, but he was a moderate. Uh, he was more of an engineer than an arter. Uh, he liked a lot of questions put to him by the staff. He wants to make all the decisions like an engineer. He likes details. But he didn't have a flowery, you know, oratorical tradition. You know, he wasn't like Humphrey, who just loved to talk, or even Biden, who likes to give speeches. He saw them as necessary, but so you had to really study them. And uh, that's what we did. We tried to figure them out. But he did have goals like human rights in the world, uh, energy conservation, uh, non-proliferation of nuclear weaponry, things like that that have looked pretty good over time. Your, your time with Tip O'Neill, uh, so memorable. And to me, he's one of the giants in American history. And, and what he was able to accomplish with Ronald Reagan and finding ways to work together and, and making it never personal. I, can we ever get yeah. back to that? Well, I hope so. Um, I uh, I remember he uh, he's at the White House one time, and he and Reagan were fighting over a jobs bill. And and, and he went to some other place in the White House for some other meeting, in the, I think the cabinet meeting. Reagan came all the way through the White House looking for a tip to find him. So that he, he says, David Stockman, who is a, a, the uh, OMB director, budgetary, he says, he thinks we can work this out. Here's the president of the United States trying to work something out with tip on jobs. It's just like today they're trying to work out an infrastructure bill. And, uh, and, and they had this weird sort of relationship like, I don't want to be disrespectful, but Tip would do things like the president will come up and uh, and Tip is on the golf course. <laughs> and he's, he will send a message back to the White House. Tell him I'll call when I'm finished my round. <laughs> Just the way you say that, my round. Uh, or he's watching television one time, a football game in his office, and the president calls. And he starts talking about some some wild play going on in the football field. Did you see that? Did you see that, Mr. President? Did you see that? And Reagan has to go find a TV set on, get turned on, try to figure out what game he's supposed to be watching <laughs> so they can talk about the game. But it's uh, it's very neighborhood in a way, that relationship. Uh, sometimes it looked like a marriage where they have to argue with each other. Like Reagan wrote in his diary, he doesn't listen. You know, things like that. <laughs> the man doesn't listen. Um, but then he would write in his diary, tips to real pal. He can be your best friend, but still knock your brains out, you know. He, he could switch from best buddy to I'm your political opponent, you know, and he did, you know. But in the end, I thought they had a nice uh, relationship. And I have to say, one time Reagan came into the office and to give his a state of the union, I think it was, and I walked in to greet him because he was using the speaker's ceremonial office in the Capitol as his, as his green room, his get ready room. So I walked into him and I said, welcome to the room, Mr. President, where we plot against you. <laughs> as a, as a, it was meant to be a icebreaker and he was very funny he just said oh no not after six right right after six the speaker says we're all friends after six what was so, it you saw in barack obama in that uh, speech he made in 04 that made you believe he would become president uh i i think to be very honest and as americans we get this 
he he, he didn't come from a uh, ordinary African-American background. I don't know whether if his name was Joe Brown or something like that, more traditional name, or Joe Robbins, there's some traditional name would be used to uh, for an African-American guy. Um, it, it was Barack Hussein Obama. It was so exotic. Uh, that it, I think it was his immigrants that he talked about his and his white mother and white grandparents on his wife's side, on his mother's side. I think the, the immigrant experience combined with the African-American experience just sort of grabbed people. And it was like most of us who are immigrants, second or second, my grand, grandmother's from Northern Ireland. I mean, we're pretty, a lot of us are pretty close to being immigrants. I think that tied them in and didn't make them real different from a lot of immigrant families. I think it, it, made, it didn't make them like black and we're white. It, it didn't come across that way. It came across as more like you. I come from a mixed background and, uh, I, uh, my grandfather, my, uh, my mother, uh, had faith in this country that she would name her kid Hussein, well, Barack Obama, he didn't bring in the Hussein part, which is <laughs> unbelievable. But, uh, I think we talk about America not being a, a blue or a red party country, but a red, white, and blue country. I think his patriotic appeal to the country's unity was was really a winner for him. I felt really good about that speech. You uh, gave in your book what I think is the best description I've seen of, of Trump, that he's almost like a character from the comic books. Uh, how much, yeah. much long-term damage did his four years in office do to this country? Yeah, well, the first part... I do think of him, if you're reading Batman or Superman comics, you would see somebody coming in, not like the big police chief, but uh, a downtown developer, rich guy from Manhattan. He would be Gotham, uh, or, uh, you know, he would be Metropolis. He would be like downtown wearing a, a, a khaki over uh, raincoat. You can just see him walking like the big shot, the big developer. He's a, he, was a, he's, he comes across even now as a cartoon, a cartoon character. Uh, you don't have to dislike him to know that. You can see that he's not like a regular person. He's a he's a, a figure, uh, and he's not exactly a personage either, like a, a regular sort of successful person. He's something else. He is a, a cartoonish fellow, uh, you know, the hair and the he's overweight, and his wife's beautiful and all. And it's, he he has lots of money. You can tell, um, and he's a developer. That's a certain kind of personality to start with, right there. You know? <laughs> Um, I think he's did a lot of damage because he told people that the 2020 election wasn't fair, that he had actually won, which is not true. And, uh, and having three out of 10 Republicans as of a couple weeks ago, believing he will be reinstated as president August 1st this year. I mean, he says things that are just wrong. They're not true. And yet people accept it because he said so. Um, a lot of people believe that Barack Obama, for example, was born in Kenya, which would be making no sense because his white mother delivered him. Why would she take him over? Why would she take herself over to East Africa to have a kid uh, <laughs> uh, and name him Barack Hussein Obama with the intention that he will become president of the United States in 35 years? It's insane. I mean, why would he leave? she leave Honolulu? Why would she call the guy Chris Matthews? Why would she call him Barack Hussein Obama? and sneak over to Africa and then sneak back. I mean, it's crazy talk. But it was a good way for people's racist instincts, where they have them, uh, to hit them. Oh, yeah, he's not American. There's a, there's a thread of optimism that, that 
runs through your book and has run through your your career, despite that Irish background that we share. Uh, what, Chris, what gives you hope for America in the future? Well, we've had a pretty good run. Elections every two years for House and every four years for president. And we haven't had to interrupt our Constitution. We've never had a military coup. We've never had to stop anything. Our democracy, for other reasons, the Great Depression we went through is still holding elections. Uh, we've avoided going too far left or too far right, except in a couple of cases. But generally, we're like the French. Nobody wants to hear this, but we're very much like the French. We're a middle-of-the-road country in many ways, a bourgeois country, a middle-class country. And uh, I think that's one thing. And I also think, uh, I think our system of mixed capitalism is really good. I mean, you know, Elizabeth Warren won't want to hear it, perhaps, although she says she's a capitalist. But I, I think, I think that the fact we had COVID vaccines first was a tribute to both government and private sector. There's a reason why people who are the worst people in the world and the best people would come here for extreme medical care, whether it's the Shah, whoever it is, they come here because we have the best medicine, we have the best uh, schools, absolutely the best universities, we have, uh, I think, the best R and D. Uh, we tend to be uh, too cowboyish, you might argue, for some people's taste, but I think our cowboy culture is very good for us. We do prefer our own car, our own house. We like to be self-reliant. Um, we don't sit around whining as a country. Uh, we're not into the French way or other countries where they love, they're quite happy to be on the dole. Our country doesn't like that. Um, we've got a cowboy culture, I'd say that, and it's bad for us in the sense that too many guns, that part's, that's part of being a cowboy culture. That everybody has to defend themselves. And we've had a hard time trying to figure out our healthcare system because of it. We want our own doctor. When he goes to church with us or temple to us, with us, we want a familiar doctor. We don't want to get somebody who just got here or, or we don't know. We have a lot of tendencies that way. And, um, and I think overall they're positive. They have some bad sides, but uh, self-reliance and... Uh, I, don't, I, I think people still like the good movie, for example, about the one who overcomes difficulties. We still like the story of the one that makes it, whether it's about Winston Churchill or anybody. We want, we want winners, and we like people that come back from the dead politically um, who, uh, who strive. I mean, Bill Clinton built his whole career on being the comeback kid. <laughs> and he, you know, he, he, played, he mastered that one. And uh, I love the fact we're picking all our recent presidents as our best presidents. I guess we really like the ones we know because <laughs> it's like the latest list just came out and there's seven of the top 11 are fairly recent presidents. Most of, a lot of the people have been alive for those presidencies and they, they like them. Look at how uh, Reagan's done. He's ninth, Kennedy's eighth. Uh, oh my God, it's amazing. It's uh, Eisenhower's fifth. Who would have thought that in the fifties <laughs> when everybody's looking down on the guy? You know, and yet building that interstate highway system is looking pretty good right now. Who would have thought you'd be famous for building highways? <laughs> he is famous for that. You know, he, he and the Democratic Congress did that. And nobody said since there was any problem with it. 80, Route 80, Route 70, Route 95, 93, I guess. <laughs> They're all being used right now for, for rush hour. The book is called This Country, My Life 
in politics and history. It is an absolutely wonderful read. Uh, Chris, it's great to catch up with you again. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you for making time for us again today. No, it's an honor to come on. It's great to be in Maine today, the home of Ed Muskie, where you have a, a national, uh, an annual holiday in his honor. I think it's so great. Thank Take you. Care and thank you. Have me on again sometime. Thank right. you. But I asked good stuff from uh, Chris Matthews, who uh, I, I didn't get through half my uh, topics that I wanted to address from the book because uh, Chris gets going. <laughs> he likes to he <laughs> likes to go and it's great, but it's a wonderful book. I look forward to reading. I haven't had the chance to yet, but uh, yeah, he, he's he's one of those guys that has done so much over his life and has so many stories mm. to tell. I, I get the feeling there'll be uh There'll be more coming beyond this as well. Yeah, and he's very upfront about uh, his own strengths and weaknesses and uh, what brought an end to uh, hardball and all of that. It's all addressed in the book, so uh, check it out. It's very good. This country, my life in politics and history. Thanks to Chris Matthews. Thanks to you for joining us. If you like the show, give us a, a good review. A five-star would be fabulous. Subscribe, tell your friends, and join us next time right here on Downtown.